morning. Oh, come on. Good morning. Hey, that's what I like to hear. Uh, it's a joy to be here. Uh, like Sean said, my name is JJ. Um, I have the privilege of preaching Psalm 46 this morning, so if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, that's what I'll be doing. Psalm 46. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you, and if there's not, uh, you can peek over your neighbor's shoulder or just look at the screen. A few weeks back, my uh, <clears throat> excuse me, my grandmother and my cousin came into town. Uh, it was probably about two weeks ago, and my cousin's nine years old. Um, it was his first time I, that I know of ever leaving Tennessee, where they live, um, and so it was a special thing for for them to both come here to San Diego and do all the fun San Diego things. And one of, one of those things was going to the beach. Um, you know, while we, were, while we were there, my cousin was excited about the beach. He wanted to get down in the water. And so uh, we went down there. He's nine. I don't know if I said that. So we, we went down to the beach. And the water was freezing cold on our ankles. Uh, but that's San Diego water. And as we're down there, he sees the waves crashing, and he's, he's, he's like, I want to go further. I want to go further. So we go further, and the, the water's now up at our knees, still freezing cold, but we're there. And he says, I want to go further. I want to go further. And so we got up probably to our waist, the waves crashing. They're pretty strong that day, but it was a lot of fun. That was really exciting for him and for me. And even still, he wanted to go further. And that sounds totally normal, except that my cousin can't swim. He, he can't swim at all. And so it was pretty crazy to think that he would want to go further and further into potential danger, knowing he himself can't swim. My cousin, I think was excited to go to the beach and to get further and further into the water because he knew that there was someone there who could help if the water got too rough or if it got too high. He had someone there in case there was some real trouble. Today in our psalm, we're going to see something very similar. Rather than fearing the potential danger that is ahead of God's people, today in the psalm, we're going to see that they find comfort and they find rest and security in God because he is the help from the trouble. In short, what we're going to see is in times of trouble, we must rest in the protection, the presence, and the hope that is given to us in Christ. I'll read it again just so you guys can get your notes. In times of trouble, we, God's people, must rest in the protection the presence, and the hope given to us in Christ. We're going to see that uh, fleshed out in, in two sections. Uh, first, resting in God's protective presence from verses 1 through 7, and then resting in the hope that God provides um, in verses 8 through 11. And before we dive in again to this, to this psalm, I want to mention something that Jimmy has said several times that I think it would be really important for us to, to keep in mind as we read. Um, the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, have both a timeliness to the text, a, a people and a place to, to who it's written for a specific reason, but there's also a timelessness to the text. There's, there's truth, not just for the moment that it was written, but there's truth forever. There's truth for all people of all time, including us here. So as we read the psalm, we can consider that it's written to a specific people, the Israelites, the, the old covenant people of God. And it's even specifically written about the city of Jerusalem. But there are timeless truths here for us to draw out as the people of God today, the church. And the reason I say that is that Jesus himself says that all of the Old Testament, the the law, the prophets, the Psalms are, are all written about him in Luke 24. And so if he says that, we can see that this Psalm must be truly about him. 
So let's listen carefully for both the timeless and timely truths of the word. Psalm 46, starting at the top, it reads, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that your word is truth. And that we can hang our hats on it. God, that there's nothing that, that can take away from it. There's nothing that can be added to it. Lord, you have given everything we need in it. Lord, you've given us everything we need in your son, Jesus. So Lord, we pray that as we, as we walk through this, Father, that you would help me to make clear what it is you've said about Christ. Lord, help me to, to make clear the hope that you have given. Lord, help me to make clear that we must trust in Christ and turn our eyes to him and him alone. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, as we turn our eyes back to the beginning of the psalm, um, we can take a quick note of who wrote it. The author, it says here, the sons of Korah, and it was written to the choir master. The choir master is just the person that leads the people of God um, in, in the Old Testament, the people of God in song, in worship. Um, but, you know, not too long ago in our, uh, in our Bible reading plan here at the church in, in Numbers, or we were going through the book of Numbers, excuse me, and we were reading through, um, I think chapter 16 is where we hit what is known as the Rebellion of Korah. So that name Korah might sound a little familiar there. Um, but basically what happens in this story in number 16 is that God has set up Moses as the spiritual leader of his people. And we see that uh, the, these descendants of a man named Korah decide that they also want to be spiritual leaders of God's people. They don't just want Moses to be the one, but they think they too should be the ones. And so they rebel. They, they stand up in front of of the people of God, and, and they try and take their place. Ultimately, we learn it doesn't really work out for them. Um, the word tells us that God himself opened up the ground beneath them and swallowed them up. But not all of them. As a grace, God allowed the name of Korah to live on. And many years later, we see not just this psalm is written by them, but there's a collection of psalms in the book of Psalms that the people of Korah wrote to praise God, to worship God, instead of rebelling against him. It also says here that this is a psalm according to Alamoth, uh, which sounds pretty interesting. Um, your Bible may give you a note that this is a maybe a liturgical or a musical term, um, but in truth, it's a bit of a mystery what this means. Um, in all my study, everyone said that it could be from 
you know, anything from a, a stringed instrument that needs to be played with this song, or maybe it's the, the pitch of the song um, that needs to be sung high because Alamoth might mean something about women. Ultimately, we don't know. And there's, a, there's much we don't know about this psalm. If we look at other psalms, many of them give us context. They give us a story, maybe that this psalm was written before a great battle or after a great battle or before a great salvation of God or after the king's sin or after the people's sin. Here we have of Alamoth. So it's pretty, uh, pretty telling. But even with that, even not knowing so much about what's going on, there's an idea here that I wanna, uh, want to press to you guys, and that's that knowing the context of this psalm, knowing what's going on around this psalm, is not that important to pull the truth out. Because the truth here is the truth. I want you all to see that knowing the specific context of this particular psalm will not change our understanding of what it's saying. As we look back over verses 1 through 7, we're going to see basically that God's people must rest in God's protective presence. God's people must rest in God's protective presence. So let's look again at verse 1. Verse 1, it reads, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So God here, in this one verse, is listed as three different things. He is refuge, he is strength, and he is a present help, a very present help. And in this first verse, we can pull from these things a little bit of context. We see that God's people need a refuge from something. They, they need strength to endure something, to overcome something. And they need a very present help to help from something. So it's obvious that the people of God here are in some sort of trouble. There is trouble. We aren't quite sure what that trouble is, but we can tell that it is there. But we also see that while the trouble may be present, so is God. For his people, God is a refuge from the trouble. He gives safety. He gives protection. He is shelter. He is a secure place from what they are facing. He is covering them. He is protecting them. And God is also giving them strength. The, the word God here that is used is the word Elohim. If you look back at Genesis 1-1, you see that exact same word when it says that he spoke all things into existence. This is the all-powerful creator God. And he's not just giving them strength in addition to what they can already muster. No, if, if we look again, it says he is their strength. He is their very strength to endure and overcome the trouble that they face. And he's not just present, but he's very present. He's not distant. He's not unwilling to help. He's not oblivious to the trouble that his people face. No, he's very present. He's very aware. He's very aware of the problems being faced, and he is willing, ready, and able to be the help, and to be the answer that his people need. This truth for the people of Israel led them to verse 2 and 3. It says here in verse 2, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. So while it's still not clear what this trouble is, even from these first three verses now, we see that it's expressed as these serious poetic calamities. And almost ironically, the sons of Korah first expressed this trouble as the very earth giving way beneath them, being unstable, just as it had been for their ancestors. Then they mentioned that this trouble is so powerful that it takes whole mountains and it easily tosses them into the heart of the sea. These seemingly secure and immovable foundations of the earth 
completely removed in the face of this, this great sea, this roaring sea, this trouble. And any mountains that are left standing we see here are hardly even able to do that. Verse 3 says that they tremble in the face of this great sea. So it's clear from this poetic description that the very earth beneath us, even the strong and sturdy mountains, they're, they're not firm enough foundations to hope in. This great and troublesome sea will devour them, and it will devour those who hope in them. But church, there is one place that is secure. There's one place that stands strong. There's one place where the people of God can always find the help that they need. And God is that very place. God's people aren't placing faith here in this psalm in the location of their city or in the the strength of their walls or in their army or not even in their allies. They're placing faith in a God that's present with them in the trouble. They're placing faith in the all-powerful creator God. They're placing faith that above all else that he will stand strong, that he will not waver in the face of such trouble. And because God is more secure than the mountains, because he is more steady and steadfast than the very ground beneath us, God's people can have a fearless confidence in the face of trouble. Because he is safe, because he is strong, because he is near and because he is ready to help, all of God's people can have fearless confidence. God's people may have their trouble, but they are described here as fearless because their God has them. It's worth noting in our lives that big, scary things can happen. Many here today may be facing distress over health problems, financial troubles, maybe the death of a family member, even your own death. These are real troubles, and they're worth considering for sure. But what this psalm is trying to show us is that even when we face the greatest troubles in our lives, there's a God who is in control, and he is with us. He's not distant. If we compare our God with our troubles, just as the psalmist here does, we too can find a fearless confidence in the hope that God gives and in the control that he has. But we see here that the Israelites are not only described as a fearless people, but they are described as a glad people, a glad city. If we look to verse 4, we'll read verses 4 through 6 again. It says here, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. But here we see the author makes this transition from describing the trouble poetically in verse 3 uh, as this, this great and thrashing and roaring sea to now openly naming the trouble in verse 6 as the roar, uh, raging nations, uh, the, the kingdoms tottering. The word here for roar is actually the exact same word that is translated rage in verse 6. So we have this clear line that is drawn between the two, that this is truly the trouble being faced by God's people in the psalm. But again, God's people are not described as fearful. They're not described as downcast in the face of such strong nations. Instead, the psalm contrasts these thrashing and raging and roaring seas with pictures of a calm river and a peaceful stream in the city of God. Where the raging sea would bring trembling, even to the mountains, even uh, to the, the nations around them, these streams bring gladness. They bring peace to God's people. Where the powerful nations bring instability. We see verse 6, The kingdoms totter. We see verse 2 that the ground becomes uneasy. If you look again with me at verse 5, we see what the people of God have. Is it instability? Verse 5 says, God is in the midst of her. 
She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. God is in the people, or in the city with his people here. He's the immovable God. He is the ever stable God. His very presence among his people is promise enough that they are safe and that his work of protection and salvation is secure for them. So they have no fear. They, they instead have gladness. They have joy. His salvation is as good as done because his presence is with them. This is why with the same confidence that we read verse 7, the people uttered, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You see, they understood that on their side was the all-powerful God, the God of heavenly armies, a God that can't be defeated by mere man and his armies. And on their side was a God who, who, whose presence was with them, whose presence promised victory, whose presence promised protection, like a fortress. He was their foundation. He would not shake. He would not totter. He would remain strong. Now for us today, as the church of God, we read this and we have to take note of a few things. We recognize that in Christ we have been given access to the presence of God in a much greater way than the people here. Where in this time God had chosen for for a time to have his presence in a temple guarded by veils and, and uh, where people were restricted from being with him fully. Here and now, we have no veils. We have no, no earthly temples that we have to go to to meet with our God, but he has come with, to be with us. He has given in Christ his very presence into each one of us. Through Christ's payment on the cross, through the forgiveness of our sins, we by faith have the Spirit of God residing in us. And by having the Spirit of God with us, we too have been given promises of protection. But in a new way, a better way. I want you to hear that trusting in the Lord does not mean that today all your problems are going to just disappear, that everything is going to be perfect until the day you are with him. It's not that kind of protection. Jesus told his followers that they would suffer much in this world. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus told his disciples that if anyone wants to follow him, they must take up a cross. So to follow Christ is to endure much suffering in this life. For he himself suffered much for us. So if the presence of God is, is not telling us today that we have protection from suffering in this life, then what is it? What, what does it mean? In verse 1, where God was a shelter to the Israelites from their enemies, Christ is now our shelter from the enemy of sin and death. He's hiding us from their blows. He's protecting us for eternity from what they could bring against us. Where God was the Israelite's strength to defeat their enemies in battle, Christ is now our, now our strength to defeat sin and death, proclaiming victory over it by his resurrection. And where God was the Israelite's very present help in trouble, church, how, how much more present now is God with us in our trouble, in our struggles, in our temptations? His presence is with us. His presence is in us. And his presence is ensuring us that the promised victory given through the cross, the victory that's not found in painless life today, he's promising us that that victory is promised in eternal life. And it's eternal life with him forever. His presence focuses our eyes on him and on his power and on his promises despite our circumstances today despite the sufferings that we may be facing in this life. So church, I want to ask you this morning, where are your eyes fixed today? 
Have your eyes been fixed maybe on your sin or on your circumstances? Or are they on the Savior Jesus? Is your heart glad with the promises of God's salvation? Or are, are your eyes fixed elsewhere? Perhaps in despair or fear or in worry, whether or not uh, death is near or maybe circumstances that are out of your control. Where are your eyes? I want to encourage you today that while we may suffer in this world, while our flesh may fail, there is a hope for God's people, for me and you. We must turn and look to Christ. We must turn and see his presence is with us, even in this broken world. We must find the shelter, the strength, the hope, and the joy in the salvation that he brings. We must rest from our fear. We must rest from our worry. We have to know that God is good and that we're in his hands, that he is in control. And we can know that because his protective presence is with us. And he will complete the work that he has started in us. As as God's people, we must also rest in the hope that God provides. We must rest in the hope that God provides. If we look again, um, actually before we go on, before we move forward to verses 8 through 11, I think it's important that we stop and we look back at verse 4. So let's look again at verse 4. It says here, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The reason I wanted to look back here at verse 4 is because this verse is clearly referencing Jerusalem. It's clearly referencing the city of God in the midst of the people of God uh, of the time, the Israelites. But if we were to look at Jerusalem, we would find that there is not actually a river or streams in the city of Jerusalem. And so the question must be asked, you know, what are these rivers and streams here being described? What are they really talking about? There were streams outside the city of Jerusalem, but there was nothing inside. Now, some have come here and, and sought to find some context, like we had talked about earlier. Uh, they're saying maybe that this is referring to an underwater aqueduct that King Hezekiah had made to bring water outside the city in. Uh, and you can read all about that in, in 2 Kings chapter 18 uh, through 20 if you really want to. Um, that those two chapters describe this miraculous salvation that God had provided and is basically without the people of God doing much of anything, uh, which is very similar to what we read here, God being their shelter, their strength, their help in trouble. But even with that said, there, there's not really enough evidence for us to make a definitive claim that that is the context of this psalm. And personally, I think the author here is leading us to something different anyways. While the nations without God are raging and bringing terror, instability, fear, the city where God's gracious presence resides has calm waters. It has gladness. It has peace. It has contentment. And when not even the heavens could contain God, he has chosen this city, this physical place, to be where he would dwell on earth, even as the most high God, dwelling with people. God's presence is what makes the city different from all cities and all kingdoms on the entire earth. It's because he has come down here to be with his people there. Now, if we flip our Bibles to Revelation chapter 22, we're going to see another picture of another city with another river that also has the presence of God. Revelation chapter 22 should be the last page of the last book of your Bible. And if it's not, feel free to come talk to me after service. But in Revelation chapter 22, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. What we're going to read is uh, the Apostle John's account of 
um, the new Jerusalem is what's being described. The, the new city that God promises his people. So let's read it. Revelation 22, verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb of God, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So back in our psalm, we see just how the presence of God in this city is really meant to push us to a future hope where those under the Old Covenant had hope for this physical protection, this physical salvation from their enemies, we see here under the New Covenant that we have a spiritual protection, that we have a spiritual salvation, that we have a spiritual hope. Because Jesus came from heaven to earth, because he put on human flesh, because he lived a perfect life, and because he died a sacrificial death for us on the cross, and because he rose again from the dead to prove he was the son of God. We have way to eternal life. He made a way for us to be forgiven of our sin. He made a way for us to be with a holy God, somewhere we could never have been before. Christ's life, death, and resurrection have secured eternal life for us. It's an eternal life that is going to be spent joyfully in the presence of God. Christ's very blood purchased our citizenship into this heavenly kingdom, into this new Jerusalem described in Revelation 22. Here, God will dwell with his people. His throne will pour forth grace and life forever. There's no darkness there. There's no hurt. There's no pain. There's no longer any trouble or anything else to raise concern there. That's what our hope is. Have you ever hoped for something in this life? Maybe once or twice. Maybe it was a relationship you really hoped for or or a job. Or maybe it's a home or a car. You fill in the blank. But have you hoped for that, that something and then... Once you finally had it, it just wasn't quite as great as you had hoped for. The other day, for the first time, my daughter heard the sweet sound that every child loves to hear in the summer. That sound was the ice cream truck. I'm not going to lie and say that she was the only one excited about it. I have a, a lot of great memories, personally, of running to the ice cream truck with cash in hand, almost having to flag it down as it's driving away from my house, just because I couldn't pry the money out of my parents' wallet in time. But there's one memory in particular that makes me almost want to laugh and cry at the same time. You see, many of these ice cream trucks sell ice cream that is supposed to look like a cartoon character. They have the character on the side of the truck, as well as what the ice cream is supposed to look like on the side of the truck. You get the package, and the package even has the picture of what the ice cream is supposed to look like. Can I tell you today, (laughs) there is no quicker way to have your hopes crushed than to buy a $5 SpongeBob Popsicle. (laughs) As soon as you see it, as soon as that wrapper comes off, you see that this popsicle has been completely melted and refrozen <laughs> into whatever shape this is. His eyes are over here. His, his tie is up there. 
His, his mouth is, I mean, it's terrible. It's really just a letdown, truthfully. But church, I bring up that disappointing popsicle story because I want to tell you the hope that we have is not like that. The reality of our hope is that it's so great, it's so wonderful, that the descriptions of it that we have only scratch the surface. We have a hope that promises not one second of boredom, not one second of disappointment, not one second of dissatisfaction for an eternity. When the day comes and the wrapper is taken off of this world, it will not be let down. But we who are in Christ will be fully satisfied, finally. And we'll be more satisfied than we could possibly fathom. But before this hope can really be made a reality, God must bring the current things to an end. As we read in our psalm, we'll see just exactly what that looks like. Uh, If we look again to verse 8, we're going to read verses 8 and 9. It says here, Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So we're stopped and we're called to behold here the works of the Lord. Verse 8 describes these works as desolations. I'm not sure if desolations is currently in your vocabulary list, so if it's not, I will make it one. Um, Desolations here, the, the root word of it that is being described in Hebrew is laid waste or horror. So we are called here to, uh, to, to see the laying waste that God has done. We're here called to see the horrors that God has done against his enemies. And in verse 9, God's works are described by saying that he makes wars cease. And this verse particularly highlights that this is a forward reality. Not saying that he just makes war cease. But look what it says here. It says, he makes them cease to the end of the earth. And while I was considering that verse, it uh, kind of had dawned on me the question of, have we ever in this world had times where there wasn't a war, where there wasn't something going on? And so I looked it up. My five-year-old self would have just let the question be because we didn't have the Internet like that. But today we have Google. And so I looked it up. And I found this quote from the New York Times from 2003. It says, Of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them, or just 8% of recorded history. In some ways, I was shocked to hear that we had any peace at all that seemed to be worldwide, that human nations could somehow work that out. But in another way, I was shocked at just how fickle, how how unable we are to keep the peace. Just as verse 6 said, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. We can't seem to keep the peace. We want more. We want more power. We want more authority. We want more land, more this, more that. We never have enough. So we strive and we make ourselves great. We build ourselves up. We portray the strength of our nations as unmatched and unbeatable. But back in verse 6, the word, well, sorry, not back in verse 6, but the word here. Although that is how the reality of this world is, the word here makes clear that there's only one who's unbeatable. There's only one who brings peace for all time. In verse 6, though the nations rage, though they bring instability, we read that the Lord utters his voice and the earth melts. We read verse 9, that the Lord breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. There's no kingdom that can stand against the all-powerful God. 
By his very words, he spoke all things into existence. And by his words, he can bring them all to nothing. He spoke the earth into its firm state. And as he speaks here in this, in this psalm, it melts. The very weapons we see that God's enemies bring are also brought to nothing. The enemies of God, they bring, they bring their weapons and they find that they're no match for God's power. The very weapons that they place their hope in, that they place their greatness and victory in, they're not only destroyed, they're decimated. They are broken, they are shattered like glass, and they are burned until there is nothing left. All the effort to be made great and to go against the Lord, we see proves to be a path of self-destruction. And I think it's for that very reason that the Lord saw fit to give us what we have in verse 10. He, he interjects here into the middle of this psalm and calls the nations to look, to see who he is. He speaks directly to us all in truth, so let's read it. Verse 10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So if there were ever any question, if there were ever any doubt as to the outcome of God's great judgment on the nations, it's clarified here. God promises that all the people of the earth will one day bend the knee to his lordship. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 10, Paul, who wrote it, takes us uh, this truth even further. He takes it further than just those on earth. But he says, uh, Philippians 2, verse 9, it says, God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So church, there's not one knee created in all time and space that will be able to withstand the great and awesome lordship of Christ. Whether that knee is a human knee or a heavenly knee, whether that's the knee of someone who has already passed or the knee of Satan himself. All will one day submit to his rule and reign. All will one day face the consequence of his judgment. But I believe that's why God tells us this here. And he gives us clear commands in verse 10. He says, uh, he says to be still. He says to be still and know that I am God. Here God tells them, he tells us, Enough. Be still. Stop your striving. Stop your working. Stop your toiling. Stop your earning against me. And know, personally, know that I am God, the all-powerful one. There's no chance coming up against him. We have to know who he is. Here God is extending his grace to all people. He's extending it to all the nations because he is a God who wants to save the nations. He's calling us all to know him, to trust him, and rather than turning away to our own devices, to our own weapons of war. He tells us not to strive, but to see that in him we have everything we need. And in Christ, we have a Savior we, uh, who lived perfectly for us when we could not. We have a Savior who has done what was required for our salvation, fully and finally. And we have a Savior who has freely offered that salvation to any who would believe. So here and now, the way that we be still starts with considering where we are before the Lord. For the believer who's already placed faith in Christ, we know that our hearts wander. It's no, it's no secret. What are you placing faith in? What are you placing faith in that is not the Lord God alone and his salvation? 
What in your life are you currently striving for? What are you hoping for? What are you hoping to find more worth and value from? If I could just have that. Is it your job performance? Your title? Your compensation? No matter how well you work, no matter how much money you make, you're not going to find satisfaction or salvation there. Is your faith being placed in your free time, in your vacation, or in your hopes of retirement? Don't you find that even when you have that time, you wish you had more out of it? It's not satisfying. Are you placing your hope in your kids, in their behaviors, in their futures? You'll find that they let you down. No one here in this life is perfect, including your kids. And they can't shoulder the weight of your expectations like God can. Are you placing your hope perhaps in your own hands? Are you placing it in your good deeds, in your work before God? Brother and sister, we must remember even a lifetime of good deeds could not atone for our sins. To truly be still, to stop our striving, we who are in Christ must turn back our eyes. We must turn back our hearts to the Lord Jesus. He alone has paid for our sin. He he alone, by his very blood, has atoned for us. He satisfies. He has satisfied the Father's justice, and he can satisfy our longing hearts. He alone brings eternal salvation and joy. We must remember that Christ has done what he has done. He has given us a great salvation, and we must stop looking elsewhere for fulfillment. We must daily bend the knee to our God and Savior. If you're here today and you have not yet fully placed your faith in Christ, there's application for you as well. God is also calling you here to be still. The all-powerful God who created all things by the word of his power has spoken that judgment will one day come. And he does not lie. He has spoken that all the instruments of his enemy's striving will be powerless before him and come to nothing and that there is only one place where salvation can be found. That safe place is Christ. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, Jesus makes clear the hope that he gives and the way that we receive that hope. John 14, starting in verse 1, it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know, that, you know the way to where I am going. Thomas, his disciple, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's a hope of an eternal city. There is a hope that we will be with God because he has prepared a place. But the way into that hope is Christ Jesus. He is the way. And if you have not yet trusted him today, if you have not yet trusted him as your personal Lord and Savior, see today that he has come for you. He has called you today to stop your striving, stop your toiling, but seek satisfaction and salvation and worth in him and not in other things. He is the way. He will not disappoint you. Trust him today and receive hope. Receive eternal life. Receive his protection, his presence, and the hope that he gives so freely. When we do that, we who are in Christ can say with all of God's people the repeated refrain of verse 11. It says here, the Lord of hosts is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. Through the suffering of the cross, Christ has fought our battle against sin and death. The God of angel armies has fought and won for us. And he's now living in us and with us until the day that that truth is fully and finally complete. We can now rest and hide in him from whatever trouble we may face in this life, knowing that he will make all wrongs right, even when it may not feel right today. We rest knowing that he will bring us into an eternal, unshakable city where we will be with him forever. His presence with us now encourages us and gives us hope that he is holding us even through the struggle of this life. And his presence encourages us that he will protect us like a fortress to the day when the wrapper comes off of this world, to the day when all bend the knee. So church, when we find ourselves in times of trouble, don't strive. Don't place your faith in lesser things. Don't fear. We must rest in the protection in the presence and in the hope that God gives to us all in Christ. Let these things give you confidence in the struggle today. Let these things give you joy in the pain. Let's worship Christ for, for all he has done. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you are so kind to us. Lord, we thank you Thank you, God, that you are not far off, Lord, that you're not distant. Lord, even as we struggle and have pain and, and sorrow in this life, Lord, we know that you're near. Lord, we know that you care. We thank you, God, that you did not see fit to leave us alone, but that you sent Christ, Jesus, that you came to be with us. We thank you, God, that where our sin would have separated us from you forever, and where you have promised eternal judgment for your enemies. We thank you, God, that you have made us no longer enemies, but, Lord, you have made us your children. You've made us your family. Lord, that you have prepared a place for us in heaven, and that one day we will be with you. One day all sorrow, all pain, all fear will be gone forever. God, I pray today that as we consider what you have done, as we consider this psalm, Lord, that you would help our hearts to see where we are not looking to you. Help us to turn back to see Christ and behold him as highest and greatest and best. Lord, help us to find all our hope in the salvation you've given, all our hope in the eternity you promise. Lord, pray that today you would save. Pray that today you would renew our hearts and our spirits so that we would no longer fear or worry, but that we would look to Christ. Help us to worship him in Jesus' name. Amen.